Welcome to Fick Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence Fick Research Team. Good morning, good morning, and welcome to this month's Emerging Market Lens and Look Through podcast. I am your host, Damian Sassauer, and today we are joined by Mr. Dan Suzuki, Deputy CIO at Richard Bernstein Advisors. Dan, a real privilege to have you here. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Yeah, my pleasure, Damian. Hopefully uh, this goes well and we can do it again in the future. I'm very excited. Yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. Well, I mean, for our audience, you know, Dan and I, I had the privilege of sharing airtime on television together, but we've never had, you know, the opportunity to really get into it. So so let's do that here. I mean, look, Dan, markets have unwound much of this year's early profits, right? I mean, investors now question the disinflationary narrative, I guess, if we can call it that, which fueled that vicious rally, you know, following the double top formations we saw at the end of last year in the dollar and U.S. yield. So my question is a simple one. Has the U.S. Treasury 10-year yield truly peaked? And just how long is the runway for U.S. dollar weakness here? Yeah, Damien, I think, um, you know, my my personal view here is I do think that the 10-year yield has peaked. But listen, we don't have a copyright on, on being right. I think ultimately what's going what's gonna to answer that question definitively is the growth outlook. Everybody is laser focused on the Fed and, you know, whether, you know, Jay Powell is sick or, you know, it's going to sneeze before the next, before the next FOMC meeting. <laughs> but the reality is that the market, the issue last year was that the market really wasn't pricing the Fed and pricing inflation. Most of that work has been done. And so the big driver here is going to be growth. So I think that growth is going to be slower. I think that's going to, going to result in a lower 10-year yield. But listen, if you're wildly bullish on growth, you probably should expect a higher 10-year yield. And, and, and that we're going to have to watch the signals to see if that comes through. Well, I think what's interesting, Dan, is the focus here on growth, right? I mean, I, not so long ago, all of the focus were on CPI prints and inflation. And now we're talking after that payroll print, um, we're talking all about growth. And it's just amazing how quickly the market's kind of changed its tune. But do we really believe we're through the worst of it? That transition from inflation to growth as a focus for markets has historically been a bumpy ride. I mean, are, are we are we through the worst of it or is there more to come here? Well, I think, you know, again, you know, I don't have a crystal ball, so I'm just looking at the same indicators that everybody else is. But the, <laughs> the, the way I look at it here, uh, I think I think it's uh, the risk reward, at least, is not is not great. And that, you know, markets have rebounded so much that they're you're paying a lot for the for the probability, you know, that things are going to, you know, that the, the, the markets and the economy are going to thread that needle. Yeah. I think there's risks on both sides that people really just aren't appreciating. You know, on the downside, listen, our base case is that growth is going to slow a little more from here. If that's the case, then inflation in the Fed probably not going to be so much a problem, but we'll have an even bigger earnings problem. And I think that's something that the market's underpricing. But then, you know, the other side of the coin here is if growth does reaccelerate, um, that's going to be good for earnings. But then I think the market is underpricing, you know, what that means for inflation. Fed. So I think those risks on both sides are, are kind of underestimated. So here we sit as we turn the page to March of 2023. I mean, 
what really, in your opinion, is the pain trade for financial markets? I mean, is it a bear steepener where the long end of U.S. Treasury yields sell off, you know, in response to that? I'm just I'm just trying to, you know, get a sense of, you know, how that transition right from inflation to slower growth, um, mm-hmm. how that kind of, you know, you know, and where market positioning is today, Dan. I mean, what do you think the pain trade is? I mean, where do, where do investors where, where are investors going to feel it the worst? Yeah, I think the the pain trade is is always the function of of narratives, and there's always sort of short term narratives and long term ther- narratives. So I think the biggest pain trades always arise from sort of the longer term, uh, you know, narratives and sort of those getting being called into question. But clearly, there's a short term narrative as well, as as you said, you know, the short term narrative is, uh, you know, maybe uh, in- inflation is going to come back, but growth is going to be very strong. I think there's there's a pain trade in there, but I think the biggest pain trade out there is that we don't go back to 2021. Right. We don't go back to this uh, period of rampant liquidity and strong growth. And if that's the case, you know, the things that dominate people's portfolios, you know, those are going to probably get hurt, and that's where the pain's going to come. So that's interesting. So then, if you know, investors, um, you know are looking to that playbook of the last decade, if that, if we have to throw that out, you know, what does the new playbook look like? I mean, what, what should, you know, from a portfolio management perspective, investors be focused on, or fixed income investors, more importantly, what should they be focused on? I mean, can fixed income offer ballast in your kind of diversified global portfolio, or should investors be taking a more, let's say, tactical approach? Yeah, I think tactical is the key, is the key word there, Damien. I think, um, you know this this idea that people have gotten so comfortable with that fixed income is always going to provide income diversification and preservation of capital. I think that's out the window at this point. I think that in in if we're right, you know, secularly, not cyclically, but secularly, we're in for a period of higher inflation and higher interest rates, and that means that you know the micro game that kind of dominates the fixed income management industry is going to have to shift to a macro focus because macro. Is going to be in the driver's seat. So ultimately, seat. So ultimately, what's going to matter the most for your portfolio, and it's going to be make or break. Is you know how are you positioned on duration, and how are you positioned on credit, and tactically, you know, shifting back and forth between the two based on what's happening in the cycle. Investors are not used to that, and more importantly, they don't have the tools to tactically manage their portfolios. If you're holding thousands of bonds, there's just not <laughs> enough liquidity, you know, to change your macro exposure effect. Well, Dan, you are now squarely in my wheelhouse and that of my audience. You're talking about the uh, when you decompose total returns and fixed income into their constituent parts, you mentioned spread, which is credit risk and duration, which is you know the return attributed to movement in the underlying yield curve. I wonder if you could talk about the other two factors, right? One being carry, which is your passive kind of mm-hmm. risk factor, and the other being currency, because you know, unbeknownst to many, but certainly not my audience, because we're incredibly well informed here, is um, is the fact that non-dollar denominated bonds comprise over 50% of the Bloomberg mm-hmm. Global Aggregate Bond Index, right? I mean, people don't really understand that, you know, there's a currency element to this. And I'm just curious, you know, what are your thoughts on carry, obviously, and uh, and currency as well? Yeah, it's definitely something that you have to to, to factor in here. I mean, I think that the, the carry story, obviously, that the higher, you know, higher interest rates, you know, are going to make increase the importance of that carry. And so you always got to you know, can think about that element and the higher it is, you know, the more, uh, you know, you should, you should be looking at that relative to the other factors. And yeah. then for FX though, 
you know, listen, I'm just not, I'm just not as smart, smart enough compared to you, Damien, to be able to, to do a really great job forecasting my, in my history, uh, you know, I've never met, uh, you know, I got <laughs> someone who can forecast FX dollar. You know, yeah. <laughs> ever. Uh, Dan, with, Dan, our audience <laughs> knows that, that I say that every time you find me one person who can tell anyone where the dollar is heading tomorrow, <laughs> you introduce me to that person immediately. I mean, I'll be sitting on a beach somewhere, but you're absolutely right. And so, you know, I think what it talk for me anyway, and, and, and you're going there is, for, you know, as it relates to the dollar, you know, um, mm-hmm. you know, it, 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 look, you know, I mean, it's just, it, it's, it's very, very difficult to know where King dollar is headed next. And for the tide to shift for, you know, everyone to be talking about, you know, now we're on this kind of structural dollar bull run. I'm just, I'm just not buying it, even if you look at, you know, real rate differentials and all that other stuff. You know, I think, you know, investors are just conditioned to believe, especially those in emerging markets, you know, they live in a world where they have to wake up in the morning and think about how am I going to reconvert my my local currency into dollars so I can afford to eat at night, right? So, I mean, that's the reality <laughs> in many of these frontier nations that I deal with. And so, you know, taking, I guess, a step in that direction, you know, I mean, there have been... Um, you know, China's reopening has caused, you know, credit default swap spreads as a proxy for sovereign credit risk to compress across the board. And it's taken, you know, these default probabilities across the frontier down with them. So I'm talking Argentina, Ghana, Nigeria, El Salvador, you know, the probability of default has declined fantastically since November of last year. My question is, and I know it's a little bit off your beaten path, you're more of a G10 guy, Dan, but is this something that's on your radar? You know, should you know, fixed income investors be concerned with geopolitical uncertainty and how this sort of is metastasizing in the frontier. Well, you know, there, there's two things that come to mind, uh, Damien. I think, to, you know, the first one is when you're talking about sort of the compression of credit default swaps uh, for all these different countries, the sad truth is now because of, you know, what's going on in Washington, you know, it, you know the likelihood, markets are pricing at a higher likelihood of default from the U.S., you know, than any of these other countries yeah. out there that you mentioned. And so that's that's sad. It's embarrassing. And, <laughs> and hopefully, you know, both sides of the aisle can get their act together and, and fix that issue. Um, because if you think about, you know, what's happened since, you know, the 2011 debt downgrade, which was the result of a similar type of issue, you know, you basically raised the cost of our, our capital by, you know, 100 to 200 <laughs> percent. That's sure. a real big number when you're talking about the size of our, our debt load. And so I think, first of all, that's the 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 first the first thing that comes to mind uh you know you know the second thing that that comes to mind with regards to uh you know the geopolitical is that i'm i tend to be of the view that most geopolitical news and most geopolitical risks are are over uh overpriced in that you know it people focus so much on the geopolitical it dominates the headlines it dominates Mm -hmm. people's conversations and so your the insurance that people are buying when they're betting on these things is it tends to be overpriced. Uh, and so you know, as a, as a longer-term investor, you know, obviously, if the geopolitical event happens, you know, then then you get paid out. But the risk reward on that is isn't great. And so we tend to not not focus on it, you know, given our time horizon, 12 to 18 months. But usually around that around that time horizon, things have already normalized. Whatever has happened. Well, I mean, you know, once again, I have to completely agree with you. I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, the way this, the, the, you know, the synthetic market trades for credit default swaps, obviously, and in lieu of the risk on environment we've just witnessed, 
on the back of Beijing's let it rip approach to economic mm -hmm. reopening. Clearly, I mean, that's taken quite a bit of the market along with it. And, and, and emerging market sovereigns, I think, are reflecting that. But again, you know, I mean, if you just think about EM public debt having risen to, what, 66% of GDP last year from just 54% in 2019. Yeah, you know, I get a little bit concerned when we talk about, you know, the capacity to meet debt obligations <laughs> out along the frontier. But, you know, let's take a step back again and, and talk about some of the, something you mentioned earlier. You talked about, you know, a profit recession. And, you know, if the U.S. is indeed entering a profit recession and valuations just so happen to turn south in a hurry for whatever reason, what do you think it would take for the Fed to step back in and backstop asset prices? I mean, is the Fed put truly dead? Um, I think it, it's dead for it's dead the way that the market has been thinking about it. I mean, there's this old idea that, uh, you know, the market falls, you know, X percent, you know, Fed's going to step in and support markets. You know, I, I think that for the, the main thing that's changed is that the, the stock market is not where the put is. You know, the put is more of a credit market put because, you right. know, as, as, the, as, as the Fed, uh, you know, Chairman Powell has said, you know, what, what they do care about is, you know, they have the dual mandate, which is, you know, in, inflation and employment. But the third sort of, you know, unspoken uh, mandate is, you know, functioning financial markets. And, and, and when credit markets freeze up, you know, clearly, you know, that that's cause for, you know, actions from the Fed, or at least historically it has been. So I think, you know, listen, if if the credit markets do freeze up and, and spreads really tremendously blow out and and um, issuers can't get to market. I think you'll, that there is still a put there, um, but obviously, you know, the strike for that put is going to be dependent on those those two official mandates. So, you know, employment where it is, um, you know, it's it's going to be a an inflation where it is. I think it's going to be a it's it raises the strike price. Such an awesome, I mean, exactly right. I mean, I agree completely. I think we've been long saying, I mean, you know, it, equities can go up or down all they want. It's only when <laughs> spreads widen, you know, when you, when you get that gap risk, that jump risk where, when, when the Fed takes note, right? And so I completely hear you there. Look, it's getting a little bit long in the tooth here. I can't let you leave without at the very least asking you about China, right? I mean, China, China, China. I mean, look, you know, you have investors on one side of the fence saying it's uninvestable. You have others saying, oh, look at the value here. How should... U.S. dollar investors approach China in the current environment. Yeah, so I'm gonna, uh, you know, with regards to China, especially from a from an equity market perspective, which is how we're positioned. Um, it, it really the lens with which we view everything, you know, comes down to three factors: corporate profits, liquidity, and sentiment. And when you use that narrow lens and and sort of isolate out everything else that people are talking about, whether it's balloons or or COVID or you know, uh, or morals or, you know, moral judgment, things like that. And you just focus on those three things. You know, the last several years of China, not just this year, but the last several years make a ton of sense. You know, you, you, you rewind the tape back to 2020 when China was the epicenter of the pandemic, you know, actually was able to get the pandemic under control relative to most other countries and support the economy. So it had the best profit fundamentals in the world. And therefore, it had one of the best performing market, equity markets in the world. Then you look at, you know, 2021 and 2022, you know, China had basically the worst profit fundamentals in the world. Why? Well, because it didn't stimulate as much and because it had managed the crisis, you know, it didn't have the, a crisis to rebound from like everyone else. And so its profits lagged and China was a terrible market, not to mention, you know, all the self-pain 
you know, that, that has been caused through, you know, the property crisis, zero COVID, et cetera. But then you, if you look at today where, where it sits, you know, from a profits perspective, you know, because of those self-induced, you know, pain points, you know, it's been in a profits recession. It's been in a two plus year bear market. We think it's exiting, you know, that's profits recession while the rest of the world is just entering the profits recession. And then from a liquidity perspective, it's the exact opposite as well, where the rest of the world is still, for the most part, raising interest rates. China has been cutting interest rates. They've been telling their banks to lend more. And as a result, liquidity is improving. So profits accelerating, liquidity improving. Yet, you know, every time I talk about China, I have to go on, have to the go on this. Yeah, yeah the three-year, <laughs> the three-minute, you know, um, disclaimer on why, how it's not a moral judgment on their system of government, et cetera. You know, people just don't want to own it. No, I know it's it's and and that's what you know. I like you take what the market gives you. So you know, my only question in that is, and I'll just you know, I have to just hit on it is, okay, fine, I hear you there. You know, China's coming off an extraordinarily low base. I mean, for them, I mean, I think consensus has them at you know, full year 2023 GDP growth of you know five, maybe a little bit over five percent. It's going to be they could hit six, seven. I mean, given where they're coming mm -hmm. from, in my opinion, but the question is, can that growth material? Will that translate into? corporate profitability you know you I, I know it's your belief that it will where do you think those pockets of profitability are most likely to be i mean certainly not the prop uh, the, the property sector i mean i'm just curious is it big tech what do you what do you see in there what do you think no i think it's going to be pretty broad-based damien i think you know the, the the important thing is you know it's been so bad it just sets a, a extremely low base on which to, which to grow up. I remember, you know, we we went through the same thing a couple of years ago coming out of COVID. The whole point of zero COVID is to limit, you know, uh, you know, action and 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 movement within the economy. So if that's all changing, you, know, you should see it from consumption. You should see it from investment. You should see it from yeah, you know, product commodity production, manufacturing. Obviously, you know, China um, is is also tied into the rest of the world. So it's not great if the rest of the world continues to slow and China is is opening up. But you know, I think relative to every other country, you know, it still still makes for uh, a, a pretty good runway for for growth. Dan, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts, for sharing your views with us here today, and thank you to our audience of ever enduring, always committed emerging market enthusiasts for your time and continued interest. Keep well, stay safe, and keep moving forward. Mm -hmm.